him is that he has very driven strategy to ban abortion by any means necessary. The legal strategist behind a Texas abortion ban sets his sights on states where abortion is still legal. For Sunday, May 7th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. We meet conservative lawyer Jonathan Mitchell. He's a kind of a technical magician. Later, investigators ask why a vehicle ran into a crowd near a Texas migrant shelter, leaving at least seven dead. Also, one man's journey to his birth country after years of legal limbo. I wanted to hear the stories that my family had, and I finally had this opportunity to just touch and feel it. And NPR's Rachel Martin kicks off a series of conversations with spiritual seekers. Why the hell would the guy who played Dwight on The Office be writing a book about spirituality? First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Seven people are dead, six others are injured after being run over by a motorist this morning outside a migrant shelter in Brownsville, Texas, on the U.S.-Mexico border. Texas Public Radio's Pablo de la Rosa has more. Police say the crash occurred at a bus stop near the Ozanam Center, a shelter for migrants in the border town. Lieutenant Martin Sandoval of the Brownsville Police Department said the driver is in custody and has been charged with reckless driving, but said, quote, it is looking more and more like an intentional act and that more charges may be filed. The Ozanam Center shelter sits just five miles from the migrant encampments in Matamoros, Mexico, where thousands of migrants are waiting for the end of Title 42, the health code that allowed the U.S. to expel migrants without considering asylum. I'm Pablo de la Rosa in McAllen. And Title 42 is set to end this week. Those victims were sitting on a curb at the bus stop near the migrant center, the shelter director told the AP, because there are no benches. A landmark decision is allowing Syria back into the fold of the Arab League after several Arab governments backed the rebel opposition to Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and cut ties with Damascus. NPR's Ruth Sherlock has more. In a simple majority, several member states voted to allow Syria to take part in the Arab League summit later this month, though some opponents of the Syrian regime, including Qatar, remained noticeably absent. The Syrian war has brought a refugee crisis and problems with drug smuggling for surrounding Arab states. The decision for Syria to return to the Arab League includes a commitment to address these issues and continue attempts to find a political solution to the ongoing Syrian civil war that has left hundreds of thousands of people dead. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Beirut. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says there are no good options for the U.S. to avoid an economic calamity if Congress fails to raise the nation's $31 trillion-plus borrowing limit in the coming weeks. This as President Biden invited the heads of both parties of the Senate and the House to meet this week on the debt ceiling. An increase in the debt limit wouldn't authorize new federal spending. It would only allow borrowing to pay for what Congress has already approved. Now, the House has already passed a bill allowing a hike in the debt ceiling but with cuts to social spending. And Piers Marleisen has more. There are a lot of Republican lawmakers who think it's worth risking default if they can achieve their goal of cutting funds for some of President Biden's priorities like climate change and student debt relief. But the president is not interested in making those changes, so the two sides are very far apart. And Piers Marleisen, without an increase, Yellen says the U.S. could default on its debt as early as June 1st. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Parents in Framingham, Marlboro, and Westboro are closely following negotiations between school bus drivers and their employer ahead of an impending strike tomorrow. Diane McPherson has one child in Westboro Public Schools and another at a Framingham charter school. She's dreading the extra traffic in the morning but supports the bus drivers in their fight for better wages. They know these kids. They, they, they know their roots. It, they're safe. They're just safe. And we should, as parents, we should really not be taking that for granted. The company, NRT, says it's made a generous offer and is negotiating in good faith. Federal buildings in Massachusetts and around the country will be lowering flags to remember the victims of yesterday's mass murder in Texas. President Biden issued the order today. A local criminologist who maintains a database on mass killings says the number of mass shootings this year is the most in the U.S. since at least 2006. James Allen Fox says he's never seen a year like this in his 40 years of research. They are happening more, but still 22 cases so far this year in a population of over 330 million. So it is on the increase, but it's still not an epidemic. Fox says his data shows an increase in the number of public shootings and by gunmen using high-powered weapons. He also says high-capacity magazines are also being used more. The state is lifting the restrictions it has imposed for the past three months to protect endangered right whales who were feeding off Cape Cod. This afternoon, the Division of Marine Fisheries announced the restricted speed limits for vessels will end tomorrow. Commercial fishermen will also be able to resume using traps. The state says aerial and acoustic surveys have not detected any right whales for several days. Sports, the Red Sox winning streak ended this afternoon, beaten by the Phillies 6-1, and the Celtics are trailing the 76ers in Game 4 in the third quarter. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. They are some of the most divisive issues today. Senate Bill 8, the Texas Heartbeat Act. Abortions will be banned once a fetal heartbeat is detected. The Llano County Library System removed 12 children's books due to their racial and LGBTQ content. In a first-of-its-kind lawsuit in Texas, the lawsuit is being brought by a man who alleges that three women helped his ex-wife get access to medication abortion. Abortion access, book banning, and people suing other people to enforce the rules. And there's one man who's been quietly choreographing the legal strategy behind fights being waged around the country. Jonathan Mitchell. Mr. Mitchell. Jonathan Mitchell. Jonathan Mitchell is a lawyer and former Texas Solicitor General who now runs his own law firm based in Austin. Advising legislators on how to draft their statutes in a way that will make them not only effective, but also able to withstand a court challenge if one arises, and then also litigation with representing private individuals or sometimes governmental entities that are facing lawsuits or bringing lawsuits. Mitchell is the architect of SB8, the Texas law that banned abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy and enabled private citizens to sue people they suspected of being involved in abortions. Some people call it the bounty hunter law. 
His former law professor, Richard Epstein, says Mitchell is among the brightest legal minds to ever sit in his classrooms. He's a kind of a technical magician. My experience with him is that he has very driven strategy to ban abortion by any means necessary. And that's Amy Hagstrom-Miller, who used to run abortion clinics in Texas before SB8 and other laws shut them down. And oftentimes his legal strategies are seen um, by the people that I talk to as, as very extreme. So I went to Texas to meet Jonathan Mitchell. In person, Mitchell is polite, mild-mannered, even soft-spoken. But he is relentless, even when he knows he's about to exasperate a federal judge. On the day I interviewed Mitchell, he'd just been taken to task by a judge because his clients had not shown up for a deposition in the Llano County Library case. Mitchell told the judge his clients didn't show up because he believed the other side hadn't followed all the rules. I can understand his frustration, but I also hope he understands where I'm coming from. Are you a Texan, the judge asked Mitchell. What part of courteous lawyering is this? This is unprecedented. Catherine Chiarello is a lawyer representing Llano Library patrons who sued county officials on First Amendment grounds. She spoke to me afterward. I've never heard a judge yell at my opposing counsel like that. This was a very big deal that Mr. Mitchell got such a dressing down. Maybe she's been fortunate in terms of what judges have said and the types of hearings she's been involved, but I've seen far worse than that. Mitchell has become an expert at finding tiny openings in the law and leveraging them on behalf of his clients and their causes. Just two days before I met him at that hearing in Austin, he'd been the elephant not in the room during a public hearing I attended in the small town of Edgewood, New Mexico, where residents spent hours debating a local anti-abortion ordinance that he had helped to draft. Is Mr. Mitchell here tonight? I understood he was going to be here. Uh, he'll be on Zoom. Before voting 4-1 to one to approve the proposal, Edgewood commissioners went behind closed doors to consult with Mitchell about the legal risks they might face for doing so. That's because the ordinance appears to directly contradict a New Mexico Supreme Court order and a new state law, both of which prohibit local municipalities from restricting abortion access. I'm Linda Burke. I'm a resident of Edgewood. We have a very friendly little town. It's a hot-button issue. I just really hate to see it turned neighbor against neighbor. With the ordinance, Mitchell took a page from the playbook he'd used to help Texas lawmakers draft the now-famous anti-abortion law, SB8, that allows civil lawsuits. Later that week, when I met up with Mitchell in Austin, I asked him about Burke's point, that it's harmful for people to be suing each other over something like abortion. It really depends on your view of abortion proper. If you are opposed to abortion and think it should be outlawed and criminalized, then the question becomes, how do you have an effective prohibition on abortion? When you ask Mitchell for his view on abortion, he quickly changes the subject to the law itself. Very little of this has been my own philosophy of abortion that I'm trying to impose. All of this has been done in the context of representing clients. I mean, you wouldn't take cases like this if you didn't care about them, I presume. I wouldn't take cases if I thought that what I was doing was legally indefensible or grossly immoral. Mitchell, who's 46, is also guarded about his personal life and religious background. He studied at Wheaton, often described as the nation's flagship evangelical college, before graduating from the University of Chicago Law School in 2001. I asked him if he calls himself an evangelical Christian today. I mean, it really depends what you mean by that. It's, uh, you know, it's very personal. And, you know, it's... I, Certainly, I'm a churchgoer, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a particular branch or an evangelical denomination, but you know, we make those decisions, and we do what's best for our family. 
After law school, Mitchell clerked for a federal judge and then Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, an experience he said made him skeptical of the court as an institution. I didn't have as much faith in the Supreme Court after the clerkship as I did before the clerkship. What did you see? What shook your faith? The decision-making was more politicized and more results-oriented than I would have expected. As a lawyer working with conservative activists and lawmakers, Mitchell has appeared laser-focused on getting results. His former law professor, Richard Epstein, describes Mitchell as a brilliant student, one of the best in his more than five decades of teaching at both the University of Chicago and NYU. He's a kind of a technical magician. You give him 10 cases and five statutes and all this stuff, and he can figure out the way to cut through this mess better than virtually anybody else you could meet. SB8 was arguably one of the best examples of Mitchell's creative use of the law. Republican State Senator Brian Hughes sponsored the bill. Sitting inside Hughes' office at the Austin State House, Mitchell told me the two men had known each other for years and had seen state legislatures around the country pass abortion bans only to have them struck down under Roe v. Wade. And we were thinking a lot over the years about tactics to try to make our laws just more immune from court challenge. Mitchell thought letting private citizens file civil lawsuits could be a way to get around Roe. And in 2021, with three justices appointed by former President Donald Trump on the bench, the Supreme Court allowed SB8 to take effect. It sort of came out like a bolt from the blow. I don't think people realized there were ways in which you could draft a statute that circumvents that entire process. It took a little bit of outside-the-box thinking. But for people in Texas who wanted and could no longer get abortions, SB8 has felt devastating. Anna Zargarian is among a group of Texas women who were denied abortions for medical emergencies and are suing the state. Here's Zargarian speaking outside the Austin State House earlier this year. I begged my doctors to give me the care I needed. They said they wanted to help, but couldn't under Texas law. Where else in medicine do we do nothing and just wait and see how sick a patient becomes before acting? I first met Zargarian last year when she told me her story about going into labor at 19 weeks and deciding to travel to Colorado for an emergency abortion her doctors recommended but said they could not provide. Sitting across from Mitchell now, inside that same state house, I asked him what he might say to women like Anna. But I do have a hard time understanding why SBA would have stopped medically necessary abortions, because the statute specifically allows them at any point in the pregnancy, and it specifically exempts those abortions from any type of liability, civil or criminal. Does it concern you that this happens? It concerns me, yeah, because the statute was never intended to restrict access to medically necessary abortions, and the statute specifically says that it's not restricting access to medically necessary abortions. So that shouldn't be happening. The statute was written to draw a clear distinction between abortions that are medically necessary and abortions that are purely elective. Only the purely elective abortions are unlawful under SB 8. Whatever Mitchell may have intended, the impact of SB 8 and other laws has been to shut down virtually all abortions in Texas. Doctors say the laws are too vague and they fear lawsuits or prosecution. Amy Hagstrom-Miller is the CEO of Whole Women's Health, which unsuccessfully challenged SB 8 in court. My experience with him is that he, you know, has very driven strategy to ban abortion by any means necessary. Um, like you see the sort of bounty hunter part of SB8, and here now you see him trying to dust off the Comstock Act from the 1800s. 
She's talking about a widely ignored anti-obscenity law that prohibits transporting abortion-related materials across state lines. Mitchell thinks it could be used to ban abortion nationwide. He's cited Comstock in the anti-abortion ordinances in New Mexico, and he's hoping court challenges to those ordinances will provoke the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh in and agree with him. Now that Roe's been overruled, the Comstock law can be enforced as written. The Biden administration is choosing not to enforce it, which, again, is their prerogative, but a future Republican administration might. Attorneys for anti-abortion groups have made a similar argument based on Comstock in an ongoing federal court case challenging access to the abortion pill Mifepristone. And Mitchell also cites it in a lawsuit filed on behalf of a Texas man who's accusing three women of helping his ex-wife obtain abortion pills to terminate her pregnancy. But Mary Ziegler, a law professor at the University of California, Davis, who has written about Mitchell's Comstock strategy, warns there may be political risks for Republicans who embrace his approach. Like it's the chess match in the courts, right? What can I get the courts to sign off on? And he's not concerned about whether voters hate it or it will backfire on the movement later. I think he's trying to win in court. And if that means, you know, the federal courts are setting the terms of the debate in ways that hurt the Republican Party or maybe even hurt the movement in the short term, I don't think that really concerns him. Mitchell's ideas could have other consequences. Under New Mexico's new law, the town of Edgewood could face expensive lawsuits for passing its anti-abortion ordinance. Mitchell has promised to defend the community at no cost. He wouldn't say who's paying him for all of his legal work. He just said it wouldn't be the town. Tomorrow on All Things Considered, it can be hard to believe it when you're late for a meeting and hunting for a spot on the curb, but the U.S. has a lot of parking, as many as six spots for every car by some estimates. We build more three-car garages in this country than we build one-bedroom apartments. A new book argues that more parking means less of nearly everything else, from affordable housing to public transit to vibrant cities. Tune in for that tomorrow, or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. You're listening to NPR News. It's 518 on 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening. I'm John Carpilio. Up next at 6, wait, wait, don't tell me. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Evita at ART. Experience the groundbreaking revival of the Tony Award-winning rock opera, Don't Keep Your Distance, starts May 17th, amrep.org. And Native Plant Trust. Enjoy 21 species of trillium in bloom, plus online programs May 8th to 14th at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. Chance of showers overnight, mid-50s. Showers early tomorrow, followed by gradual clearing, low 70s. 77 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass., more at SoaringHawkCenter.com. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, LaurenHolleran.com. Fire at an outlet mall in Allen, Texas, killing eight people and wounding several others. The gunman was killed by police. President Biden, in a statement, says the shooter used an AR-15 style assault weapon and wore tactical gear, and he ordered flags on federal buildings lowered to half staff. 
Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says there are no good options for the U.S. to avoid an economic calamity if Congress fails to raise the debt ceiling. President Biden plans to meet with the heads of both parties of the House and the Senate this week. And the Oakland A's say Vita Blue died yesterday at the age of 73. No cause was given. He led the A's to three straight World Series titles. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Scripps News, committed to objective reporting that illuminates and informs the whole story. Available live with a TV antenna or streaming device. More at scripsnews.com forward slash TV. And from Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at Progressive.com slash careers. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sarah McCammon. Let's admit it, there are just too many podcasts out there, and it's hard to find the really great ones. Well, we are here to help. Every week at this time, All Things Considered is going to play you a portion of a podcast we love from the NPR Network. We're kicking it off with Finding Home Kondaka. It's a series from the LA Studios podcast, How Do LA? And it's hosted by Brian De Los Santos. He recently sat down with my co-host, Elsa Chang. Even when we're lucky enough to have a chance to travel, the opportunity often comes with some anxieties. Next thing is like, how do I even get there? And it's super expensive. Like I gotta leave in about two weeks. So I know that prices are not gonna be pretty. What are the gay friendly spots? I don't even have a damn suitcase. Shoes, clothes, my gear for work. Are you gonna give me the time off? Who's gonna host a podcast? I gotta talk to my manager. Actually, that I'm leaving the country. Wait, where am I even gonna stay? But what if an added anxiety was the possibility of leaving and being unable to return? For years, that had been the case for Brian De Los Santos. He's the host of the How to L.A. podcast from LAist Studios. I was told I was undocumented in middle school. He arrived in the U.S. from Veracruz, Mexico at the age of two. And in 2012, he became a beneficiary of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA. That lifted the threat of deportation and allowed him to get a driver's license as well as other documents. But he could not leave the country because going back to Mexico would have risked his DACA status until very recently. He documented his trip back to his birth country for a special series called Finding Home con DACA. Brian De Los Santos joins us now. Welcome. Hi, Elsa. Thanks for having me. So before we get to your trip to Mexico, can you just first talk about what it had been like growing up to be from a country, a homeland that you had no real relationship with for many, many years? Oh, wow. Well, I think the most meaningful things when I was growing up was a visit from Abuela, which only one of my abuelas could actually come to LA and visit me, or those Skype or those telephone calls to Mexico. Mm. That was my only thread back to Mexico was those visits or those phone calls. And for me, I'm lucky I grew up in LA and I'm able to exist within my Mexican culture here in this city. But 
it was always this thing of like, am I American? Am I Mexican? Also, the whole threat of deportation, of not knowing what my future looked like because I was undocumented until I was essentially 21. Right. I just didn't know what my life would be like. Yeah. I mean, you talk about in the first episode, you talk about how your immigration status before DACA puts you essentially in what you called survival mode. Uh, be in the survival mode of like, I have to be a one step ahead with information, whether it was resources or even how to drive in certain streets, the LAPD versus the LA County sheriffs, you know, who is more pro-immigrant or who is more anti-immigrant in those departments. Since I found out I was undocumented, it's always been like a risk of just living here. Can you talk more about that? What did you mean by survival mode? I think it's always kind of like looking over your shoulders, not just like from police and from, you know, getting pulled over and not having a driver's license, but also just like, how do you kind of like be in stealth mode so people don't pay attention to you? For me, it was like kind of like, how do I survive in this country where I don't have a permission to be here, essentially? When I became a DACA recipient, it was not just like becoming a DACA recipient. It was also like, okay, what do I have to do next to figure out how to stay here long term and eventually hopefully get a green card? And, you know, there still isn't a solution for DACA recipients right now. Exactly. And while you've been a DACA recipient, it's been unclear whether you could go back to Mexico without risking your immigration status. But eventually you were able to leave California and go to Mexico. It's part of something called the Advanced Parole Program. Can you explain what that program is? Yeah. First, I want to say that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not 100% a legal expert. I just know through my own process. And there are three ways you can get this document. You apply through U.S. Immigration Services and you ask them through humanitarian reasons, which is you get to go visit family, loved ones in your home country or through school, which is, you know, you do a program or semester abroad or a business trip. And those are the three reasons you can apply for advanced parole. Now, you send your check-in, you wait for your case number, you wait for immigration officials to essentially give you this document. But I do want to say, and this is why a lot of people don't do advanced parole, you're not guaranteed re-entry into the country. It says it right there in the letter they sent you. It says in big red letters that your re-entry is at the discretion of the CPB official, mm -hmm. essentially when you're re-entering the country. Yeah. And you get to Mexico in late February of this yes. year. And, you know, you describe this moment while you're sitting on a beach in Puerto Vallarta. I was at the beach earlier with a friend I met here in Mexico, in Puerto Vallarta. There was a moment where the sun was just setting and it was just so beautiful. I said... This is the happiest I've ever been in my life. The beach, the sun, no worries, no thoughts. And I don't think I've ever experienced that. I'm trying to be this journalist right now. <laughs> Recording, what are you feeling and why are you crying? I mean, when I heard that, I thought, like, after so many years, Brian, in what you call survival mode, what was it that finally allowed you to feel that sense of happiness in that particular moment? I just felt like the words that come to my mind right now is, I'm here. 
And I feel like ever since I had that moment, whenever I think about that moment, I'm transported back to that beach. And it was this beautiful sunset. There was someone playing the trumpet in the distance. There were kids playing. And I was just like, my favorite place in the world at that moment was the beach. Um, <laughs> and it just felt like a weight lifted off my shoulders. Like I've always wanted to experience Mexico. I wanted to eat the food that people talk about on social media. <laughs> I wanted to hear the stories that my family had. And I finally had this opportunity to just touch and feel it, you know. And uh, when I was younger I, I just heard the stories and I, I heard the stories from my friends about going to these beaches or going to the city and I just it wasn't reachable for me I couldn't touch it and yeah. now that I was touching it for me it was like this means the world to me and yeah it, it was beautiful and yet while you were there you were constantly reminded of all the years that you had spent like growing up in the U.S. like in Mexico City honestly. There was this point where you ask a friend who lives there if he sees you as Mexican or as a gringo. And I had to ask him how he viewed me. Am I Mexican? What do you see me as? And he said, as a gringo. <laughs> yes. How did that feel to hear him call you a gringo? Like a slap in the face, to be honest. <laughs> but it also was a realization for me that I actually thought about throughout my whole trip in Mexico. It's also like the culture, like the references. I didn't understand some references that people, you know, said to me. And I had to like just ask them, like, what did you mean? ¿Qué, qué es eso? And so, like, I understood the privilege I I had just being able to live and work in the United States. But I also felt the sense of like, okay, that's the way people see me. And I've never felt like I was American enough to say that I'm a gringo. But I did realize that I do carry American culture with me. I My English and my Spanish are very different, obviously, from Mexicans in Mexico. But it's something that I, you know, I had to learn. Yeah. Well, then the moment that you said you had been waiting for your whole life was seeing one of your abuelitas, one of your grandmothers, in person after all those years. Hola, abuela. ¿Cómo estás, hijo? Bien. ¿Sabes quién es? Brian. <laughs> what is the one thing that you will never forget about spending time with her in person? Um, the food, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's that grandma's yeah. meal that she serves you. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I was sharing with my family and friends is that people around me, they could go to the grandma's house. And I've never had that. I've never had, you know, going to abuela's house and be like, abuela, tengo hambre. You know, I'm hungry. Like, what is there to eat? It, <laughs> it felt like this is what my life could have been in Mexico if I had stayed here right. or if I had the documents to come here whenever I wanted to. And so it was bittersweet. Oh. And so the other bittersweet moment is when you have to explain to people, I'm only here for this one trip. Yeah. I don't know when I'm back. You know, so much of your podcast, it's about the heartbreak that many immigrants experience and, and maybe is more intense for DACA recipients specifically. And what I mean by that is like, you know, on the one hand, you're trying to prove that the U.S. is where you belong. But at the same time, on the other hand, you have the pain of being cut off from your family, your heritage. Does someone ever reconcile those feelings, you think? Do you think you will? I've been learning a lot to let go of things I can't control. And this is just me speaking for myself. And I've learned that my status in this country is something that I 
can't really control. I do want to say that a lot of people have written to me because I've shared my immigration um, story before, not just on this podcast, but in different places I've worked at in journalism. Um, people ask me, well, why can't you just, you know, go and stand in line through the immigration process? And I tell them it's way more complicated than that. It's not as clear cut as people may think. Mm -hmm. And so me just being at peace that I'm trying my best to figure out where I stand in this country and later that does affect who I am in this country. I think I'm working towards at least I got to do this trip and got to know a little bit of my heritage. I think there's always going to be a piece of me that I'm always going to be missing just having the opportunity to be in Mexico. But... I do realize who I am and um, I'm still learning. I think mm -hmm. that's what I want to say. Mm -hmm. I'm still learning who I am. Uh, I am too. And I know that you've talked to other DACA recipients for this series who probably feel very similarly. Brian, thank you so, so much for this. Thank you, Elsa. That was my colleague Elsa Chang speaking with the host of How to LA, Brian De Los Santos, about his three-part series, Finding Home Con DACA. The series follows De Los Santos' journey to Mexico, his country of birth, for the first time in 30 years. But it also beautifully incorporates the voices of other recipients of Advanced Parole for Travel, the program that allows certain immigrants to travel outside the U.S. and return lawfully. I'm Ruby Ferguson. I'm 27. I received my approval letter February of 2022. I had not been to Mexico since I was seven years old, I wanted to see my family. I wanted to see my grandparents. I can still remember every detail of the trip. My name is Luis Ramirez. I am 35 years old. I remember feeling like it wasn't real that I had left the country. I had arrived at the airport in Guanajuato and was getting picked up by my mom and my cousin. The drive over to the little town that I grew up in still felt very surreal. When the plane was landing into Veracruz, I saw the ocean. I saw the houses. They were so vibrant, the colors. That feeling of knowing that I had finally made it to my home country after all this time my grandmother and my aunt standing there being able to hug them after two decades. There's just this magic to being surrounded by family that just pour all this love. I am thankful that I had the privilege to make my trip possible. I hope that in the future I'm able to travel again to see my family again. Finding Home Con DACA is a podcast series from LA's studios. You can find it in the How to LA podcast feed. And join us again next weekend at this time when we'll bring you another of our favorite podcasts from the NPR Network. This is NPR News. At 
least seven people were killed and six more were injured after they were struck earlier today by a vehicle near a migrant shelter in the city of Brownsville, Texas. That's on the Texas-Mexico border. Texas Public Radio's Pablo de la Rosa is covering the story, and he joins us now from the Rio Grande Valley. Pablo, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. This incident happened around 8.30 this morning at a bus stop outside the Ozanam Center, which, as we said, is a migrant shelter. Pablo, what else do we know from law enforcement about the driver and what happened? Well, I reviewed a surveillance video of this horrific incident this morning, and it shows an SUV crashed into a crowd of people at high velocity and uh, in front of a migrant shelter in Brownsville. Now, to give listeners some idea... The the Ozanam migrant shelter is just five miles from a similar migrant shelter in Mexico. So this is a region where migrants are traveling through, where migrants may be released by federal agencies to travel to other destinations. And this is what was happening. They were waiting at a bus stop to go to their next destination. Uh, After the incident, the driver was immediately taken into custody. He, He remains in custody at a county hospital. He's being treated for injuries, and uh, Brownsville Police Department has identified him only as a Hispanic male resident of Brownsville, Texas. Mm -hmm. And what do we know about the victims? Well, the police department has confirmed that at least some of them are, uh, some of the deceased are migrants, and they're continuing to look into that. Uh, All traveling to other parts of the country, uh, country, this particular group uh, was mostly Venezuelan Uh, men. And what have authorities said, if anything, Pablo, about whether or not this was an intentional act? Earlier today, Brownsville PD said they're looking at three different possibilities. The first is that this was an alcohol-related incident. The second is maybe a road accident, and they're looking into those two possibilities, including uh, there's a blood sample from the driver in toxicology right now. But the third one is that maybe this was an intentional act. And just very recently, before I got on the call with you, uh, we've got local reports in, 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 in local media with some of the victims saying, let me read you one quote. Uh, this is from somebody who was in the crowd. A woman in a car passed by and advised us to separate. Moments later, the killer was coming in the car, gesturing and insulting us. And uh, we've also got a statement from Lieutenant Martin Sandoval of the Brownsville Police Department from earlier today. He said, quote, it's looking more and more like an intentional act and more charges may be filed. So uh, we, we don't have a de- definitive statement from authorities right now that it was an intentional act, uh, but it's under investigation. And we'll, we'll find out uh, hopefully soon what may have been behind this, this incident. Such a hor- horrific incident. How are people in the area reacting? Well, everybody's expressing so much heartbreak, you know, on social media, including city leaders. Uh, This border community has hosted migrants on both sides of the border for generations, and we've got the end of Title 42 coming up. So there's an expected large number of people coming across, and it's just been frustrating to see uh, a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric on media coverage, and it's been frustrating. Some people are frustrated with with uh, the logistical challenge of accommodating these migrants in the region. That's Texas Public Radio's Pablo De La Rosa reporting from the Rio Grande Valley. Thank you for your reporting. Thank you. This is NPR News. 
Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Stay with us. Up next at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Beyond listening, your inbox is the easiest way to follow the news from WBUR. Each weekday morning, WBUR Today is a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now at WBUR.org slash newsletters. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And the Lyric Stage with Sister Act. And Then There Were Nuns, a divine, feel-good musical comedy. Newfound sisterhood is wrapped in love. And a few sequins in a tribute to the power of friendship. Now through May 14th, tickets at lyricstage.com. Chance to showers overnight, temps in the mid-50s. Right now, 77 in Boston. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In Brownsville, Texas, several people are dead. Others are injured after a motorist drove into a crowd waiting at a bus stop outside a migrant shelter this morning. It's not clear if the crash was intentional. The driver is in custody, charged with reckless driving, and police say more charges could come. Syria has been readmitted to the Arab League after a 12-year suspension that started at the beginning of the country's civil war when several Arab countries backed opposition to Syria's president and cut ties with his regime. The move has been criticized by Washington. And at the weekend box office, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 debuted in the top spot with an estimated $114 million. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. When I discovered Star Trek, it changed my life. The actor Rain Wilson says while other kids may have been focused on the spaceships and alien creatures, he was seeing deeper messages that unironically have helped guide his life. I can't tell you how much that show meant to me. Uh, on so many different levels. In his new book, Soul Boom, Rain Wilson tells the story of his spiritual life, from the sci-fi he watched growing up to rediscovering the Baha'i faith he was raised in. And yes, you might be asking yourself, Why the hell would the guy who played Dwight on The Office be writing a book about spirituality? NPR's Rachel Martin is here to answer that question. Hey, Rachel. Hi, Sarah. Yeah, so what is the answer? I mean, what (laughs) does Rain Wilson have to say about spirituality? He has so many things to say. He has done the thinking on all the biggest questions. You know, he's very introspective. He talks very openly about big questions like God. Is there a divine power? And what is our moral purpose in the world? Yeah, from the sound of it, he's been thinking about these questions in different ways for a really long time, maybe his whole life. What was it that drew you to his story? 
To be honest, these are some of my own personal preoccupations. You know, I am thinking through the same things. What is our purpose here in this world? And how do we create meaning in our lives? So we're going to use this space as a place to explore these questions. Over the next several weeks, we're launching this series and we're calling it Enlighten Me. Yeah. And Rachel, I'm so excited for this new series you've started, uh, you know, selfishly, because I think about this stuff all the time, too. I can't wait to see what you discover. What's it going to look like? Every week, we're going to bring you a very intimate conversation with a person who is working on building their own spiritual identity. Some of the names you'll recognize, some of the names you won't. But the common thread is that they're all people who are trying to find their own answers to life's biggest questions. Okay. Well, I'm excited to hear how this all played out with Rain Wilson and where he's at with all of these giant questions. Right. Well, remember, he's a TV star. So he didn't just watch a lot of TV as a kid for entertainment. He found deep meaning there. And as we heard earlier, one of his favorite shows was Star Trek. And he explained why watching it religiously was actually kind of a religious experience for him. So for me, when I look at Star Trek, yes, it is a bunch of folks on a spaceship boldly going where no man has gone before. But it's also about the next stage of the evolution of humanity on planet Earth. You see, the backstory to Star Trek that a lot of people don't know is that there has been a horrific World War III, and coming out of the ashes of that war, Humanity has essentially solved racism, solved sexism, has uh, solved income inequality, and is then able in its maturity to go out into space and explore and spread the word. I am old enough, NPR, to remember the 70s when people would actually talk about world peace. And mean it, and, not like as an irony, right? And mean it. And we believed that we could have uh, peace, especially with the end of the Cold War. And nowadays you bring up world peace and you just get that big collective eye roll like, oh my God, you're the most naive idiot to walk the face of the earth to even consider world peace. Human animals are self-serving and aggressive and backstabbing and will never have peace. We'll only have a kind of detente where hopefully we're not blowing each other up as we slowly, slowly destroy our planet all the while. So, And do you not think that? I don't think that. I think that there is a one story of humanity, which is tribal and which is about aggression and is about conquest. And that's one story. That's one mythology of humanity, right? There's another one where humans lived at peace with nature where humans were cooperative, uh, were kind to each other, uh, were worked together, um, shared knowledge and uh, enlightenment, and move forward and into progress. So we can focus on that mythology of humanity. Like a lot of people who grew up in a faith tradition they inherited from their parents, right? You fell away, like so many people do, but then in your early 20s, you were going through a hard time, you were working through a lot of mental health issues, and you found it again. Can you walk me through what that process was like? Did it feel very comfortable, like going back home, or 
were you hesitant about <laughs> it's sort of not the cool thing to be like it's so not cool to be religious. <laughs> it is, and and it's so funny because I've always identified as being a dork and a misfit and an outsider. Maybe that's why I played Dwight so effectively. Apparently, um, and Hollywood comics and comedic actors are filled with misfits and alienated outsiders. But then you throw into the mix. I'm a religious person and my religious faith, which is the Baha'i faith, is a very important part of my life. Uh, oh, Rain Wilson is also a member of this obscure Eastern religion and talks about God with Oprah and, and whatnot. Like they believe me, the, the stand-up comics and comedic actors of Hollywood have no idea what to do. I alienated even the unalienatable. With that. <laughs> but yes, you're absolutely right. I rejected anything and everything to do with religion and faith and spirituality when I was in my 20s and pursuing my career as an actor and my education as an actor in the theater in New York. I didn't want anything to do with morality um, or God or hypocrisy of religion. I viewed religion as a weakness used as a crutch by weak people and um, spent many years as an atheist. And well, then things just started to break down for me. So uh, I suffered from really crippling anxiety. I had uh, regular anxiety attacks that uh, would render me lying on the floor in a pool of sweat, no joke. Mm -hmm. But it led me back on a spiritual quest where I was like, you know, maybe I lost something by getting rid of mm -hmm. anything and everything to do with spirituality. Maybe, maybe there's some answer there. So mm -hmm. go figure. You described talking to friends in this time about what they thought about a higher power and you were not satisfied with their answers. What were they telling you? So I would ask my friends, hey, do you believe in God? Which is a great way, to, a good great conversation. Good time at parties, Rain Wilson. <laughs> I would go to parties and be like, hey, do you believe in God? And people would gulp and turn ashen and Where's bolt in the hummus? other direction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, check, please. But almost to a person, uh, my artist friends would say, well, I certainly don't believe in an old man on a cloud, you know, with an agenda scowling down at us. But I definitely, I believe that there's something more out there. There's some kind of energy, some kind of eternal creative juice, something going on out there. And that was fine. And I was with them on that, but that wasn't enough for me. I was like, wait a second. So yeah. There either is a God or there's not. But do you really not think there's a gradation? Like, you're so sure that there is God? Oh, yeah. Sure is not the word. Um, I know there's a God. Um, it's not a faith thing. God is as real to me as, as my body is. Um, let me put it this way. Let's back up and get a little mystical for a second. Yeah. In the Baha'i faith, there's a prayer we say every day where we say, um, I bear witness, O oh my God, that thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. And we say this prayer every day. We have been created to know and worship God, according to the Baha'i mythology. And at the same time, in the Baha'i writings, the number one way to describe God is unknowable. So here we are, we have been created to know the unknowable. I love that. 
That makes my head sizzle with excitement. I get that. So I'm trying to know the great mystery, to know the unknowable. That's a process. It's not a destination. It's not something you arrive at. It's an ever-evolving process of understanding what it is to be in the midst of life. You believe there's God. You believe God made the world and that there is also intention in that is what I discerned from your writing, that the, that it's not all random, right? And I'm going to quote from your book. Surely it, God, can't have created all of us sad and beautiful human beings and cast us on this planet like a bunch of ants in an ant farm to simply have at it with a good luck pat on the back and a sign off of, hey, enjoy all this random useless beauty. But but why not? I wrote that? That's you really did. good. That's good. I know. I love that. But... <laughs> But I, I guess I am, I stand in awe of your assuredness as someone who, who myself is, is seeking some kind of um, intention in the randomness of life. Um, but how do you know it's not all just random? How do I know? I guess the best analogy I can give is that I know that I love. I know that I love my wife. I know that I love my son. I know that I love my father who passed away a few years back. And forgive me for, for tearing up on the radio. It's a terrible place to tear up on. Um, it's the best because we can't see you. Uh, but, uh, and how do I know that? Like, if I went into a scientist and said, prove to me that I love, and they'd say, well, we're going to do some brain scans and an MRI and a CT scan, and we're going to look at what parts of your brain light up. and But that's not love. That's not love. And I will never believe that love is simply a, a chemical neurological response in order to, you know, continue the species propagating itself. Um, my experience of love is far deeper and more profound than that. So that's the first step in knowing that there is a creative force um, in the universe is I know that there is love. I also know that there is beauty. I also know that there is art and there is music and all of these things that are ineffable and transcendent and uh transport my spirit um, are, are, are footprints, they're, they're handholds on the path to finding the great mystery. You write that sacredness is a condition, and I love that line. If sacredness is a condition, how does that manifest for you in a daily way? Boy, that's such a great question. I want to go to the quote that I can't quite remember from Thich Nhat Hanh, that it's essentially in the eyes of someone who is awake, all things are sacred. And uh, 
There has been a profound loss of the sacred in contemporary Western civilization. Uh, nothing is sacred anymore. Um, and I think sacredness and holiness is part of the conversation that we need to have um, collectively. You know, what what is sacred and how does it work? We can certainly experience it in nature. Um, and, you know, for religious people, we can experience it in holy sites. But how can we nurture the sacred uh, as a condition in our hearts that we can carry with us so that a conversation like we're having can be sacred? So that, you know, a place where you contemplate life in the world can be sacred. Um, to see sacredness in the everyday means purging yourself of cynicism, doesn't it? Which is sort of the social currency of the moment, it seems. Yeah, I um, was fortunate as an actor to study with the great acting teacher, Andre Gregory, the focus of the movie, My Dinner with Andre. And he would meet with the students and I had tea with him once and he said, how are you doing, Rain? And I said, you know, Andre, I'm just feeling so cynical. I'm feeling pessimistic. Nothing's, the world is a pile of crap and it's getting worse. And I'll never forget this experience. He grabbed my arm. I mean, even back then he was like 80 years old. Now he's like 110. He grabbed my arm like a vice and he looked into my eyes and he said, stop it. Don't do it. Don't be cynical. Everything wants you to be cynical. Everything out there in the world wants you to be pessimistic. If you're cynical, they win. You have to keep hope alive. And that was transformative. And I walked out into the West Village out of his apartment and I really saw the world in a different way and realized that fostering hope and fostering joy in others is maybe our highest spiritual calling that we can do. We have to keep hope alive that we can transform ourselves, that we can transform the planet. And that is a key pillar to the spiritual revolution. That was NPR's Rachel Martin speaking with the actor Rain Wilson. His new book 